In today's polarized world, how do we identify and practice our core values? How can we bring our spiritual and ethical commitments into our lives? What might activism grounded in spirituality look like? I'm Dr. Simranjit Singh and the host of Spirited, a podcast about thinkers, leaders, and activists, and how they use their beliefs to navigate today's complicated world. I'm sitting here today with Cecilia Munoz, one of the foremost experts on immigration in America today. In 2008, President Barack Obama appointed her to his White House staff as the Director of Intergovernmental Affairs. She served in that role for five years and then was appointed as the White House Domestic Policy Council. Prior to joining his staff, Cecilia served as Senior Vice President for the Office of Research, Advocacy, and Legislation at the National Council of La Raza, the largest Latino advocacy organization in the United States. She's currently the Vice President for Public Interest Technology and Local Initiatives at New America. She has a number of other accolades and appointments I could list here. What I really want to tell you now is that Cecilia Munoz is a Detroit native and the daughter of immigrants from Bolivia. She's also a wife and a mother of two grown daughters. So the first thing I ask all my guests is what's at your core and what drives you? Um, I describe myself first and foremost as a Latina mom, um, the daughter of immigrants, Midwesterner, and a policy nerd. And policy nerd is probably the kind of practical description of, of who I am and what I do. I'm a person who believes in our ability to make collective decisions and execute on those decisions and be a society where we're creating opportunity for each other and helping each other be our best. And that's, if my life has been about anything, I think it has been about that. And because I'm a Latina, because I am the daughter of immigrants, I'm also the wife of an immigrant, I focus a lot on communities of color, on immigrant communities, on economic opportunity. My parents came with not very much other than my dad's education. and But they arrived in Detroit at the a point in the 50s when Detroit was booming. And Detroit is a city that made the American dream real for my parents. And I came up with a very deep sense that my job was about making that possible for, for everybody. Yeah, that's great. And you tell us a little bit about your, your childhood and, and even your spiritual formation. Were you born and raised in Detroit? I was born and raised in Detroit in a big immigrant family. We were Roman Catholics, you know, church every Sunday. Hmm. And I think my parents never questioned that anything else was possible until my brother came home with a lovely Jewish woman. He and my sister-in-law have uh, raised their uh, their children as Jews, and he is a member of a, of a temple and is deeply happy there, which I watched because I'm the youngest. I watched my parents sort of grapple with that because that was pretty outside of what, you, what, what a Bolivian expects for their children, but they couldn't get around the fact that my sister-in-law is wonderful and her family is wonderful and... I married a Hindu, and since I'm the fourth child, my parents had been pretty well broken in. <laughs> um, and more importantly, my family was capable of, of recognizing that there are multiple pathways to the truth and multiple pathways to what we call God. We're very lucky to have experience of that within our own family. I still consider myself a Catholic, although shakily so. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband is a Hindu who is who is also baptized in the Anglican faith, and we raised our children as Quakers. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, there's quite a lot going on in our household. 
but the the unifying thread, I think, um, is that in all of the traditions that we come from, that there is there is a element of seeking the truth in silence, in listening, and it turns out that Quakerism was a good place to express that. So tell us about how you got into your work with immigration rights and advocacy with La Raza. So I um, did my graduate work at the University of California. I did my undergrad at Michigan and my graduate work at Berkeley. And in Michigan, in the 80s, which is when I was in college, there were just not a lot of Latinx people at the University of Michigan. Just very, very like the pretty much the people that I knew from my community, I was related to. Hmm. Um, and then I get to Cal, and suddenly there are people, there are Latinx people everywhere, and the streets are, the street names are in Spanish, and the towns around are in are Spanish names, and it it was a, it was when I realized that I was part of a larger thing, and that it was part of me, and that was when I really connected to the kind of history and tradition of this community that I felt part of without even knowing that it was there, and. I was fortunate enough to have some funding for graduate school so that I didn't have to um, wash dishes, which is what I did as an undergrad. So I decided to volunteer, and I volunteered at a Catholic-run legal clinic for immigrants. And um, that's kind of how I started. I've been at some level doing immigration ever since. But I was very sure that I was destined to be like a service provider, that my that my path was about being in an organization that had clients that serve, you know, people who came in the door every day. And I did that. I did that as a volunteer. And then I moved to Chicago and worked for the, also for the Catholic Church, for the Archdiocese of Chicago, and discovered that I'm not, that that's not what I'm good at. I helped run a legalization program, actually. This was after the 86 immigration law. Three million people were able to legalize their status. And I ran the program for Catholic Charities in Chicago and helped form a coalition which still exists in Illinois, an immigrants' rights coalition. The lines form before dawn at many offices of the Immigration and Naturalization Service. That's business as usual. But now the INS is gearing up for more than a million more immigrants. But I could not let go of the people that we couldn't help because they didn't qualify. And I lost sleep about it and I agonized and that helped me realize I'm not actually cut out to be a direct service provider, but I did find my voice as an advocate. I learned that the people who were who we were seeing every day that there were ways in which the laws and the systems didn't didn't help them, didn't address their needs. And that was kind of my introduction to, to advocacy work. And that's I kind of found my voice that way. And I, that's what ultimately brought me to Washington. You know better than most that there are people watching this interview who are saying they shouldn't have come. We have a broken immigration system. I've been working on this in this policy area for 30 years. I'll be the first to say we have a broken immigration system. And I kind of learned policy from the vantage point of somebody who had been a practitioner, somebody who had been, you know, trying to provide services in the community. And that's an unconventional path to policy, which tells you a little something about um, who ends up being policymakers. Um, because I was, I think, unusual as a person who ends up making policy. But I, immigration was sort of my doorway in. And I think just about everybody that I know who sees themselves as part of the immigration field has had the experience of they never actually chose it. It kind of chose them. And that's certainly true for me. So let me ask you about those sleepless nights. What I mean is that we all know that these are issues. What is it, do you think? What What's so personal about it for you? Well, it was just by accident that it wasn't my family. And in some cases, it was my family. 
But I felt, I feel deeply aware that my parents came at a time before the law changed, where if you were from the Western Hemisphere, you could just come. That was kind of by accident. They didn't intend to come as immigrants. They came because my dad needed one more credit um, to graduate. But if they hadn't done that, our my whole family's trajectory would have been very, very, very different. Um, and I do have family members who did come after the law changed and who were undocumented for a time. Um, and the you know difference between my life and their life is an accident. And uh, I, I feel aware of that every day. And I also am aware that I live in a country where we give ourselves the opportunity to do better. We have these vibrant de- debates. We have a history of forward motion. We also have some history of backward motion. We're in one of those times now. But that combination of things is very powerful to me, that that the fact that I had opportunity was an accident. And it feels important to me to use whatever opportunity I had to kind of address the folks who were on the other side of that accident, mm, really? who happened to have been born after the law changed, or you know, whose circumstances just weren't, frankly, as lucky as mine were. Can you talk a little bit about that, about your transition from providing direct services into leadership and then working in the government? Did that seem like a natural transition, or did you struggle with that? And how, how did you do it? So the, the transition from, from providing services to being an advocate in D.C. was pretty easy. I mean, I had some, some of the craft of policymaking to learn, which I learned in the years I was at NCLR with an, some extraordinary teachers. And I really wondered. I didn't intend to go into government. And I resisted going into government. When President Obama asked me to serve, I actually initially said no because uh, I had teenage daughters at home and my mother had recently passed away and I was very focused on not turning my kids' lives upside down. And he's a he's a very persuasive guy. <laughs> um, so I was I had doubts about whether the skill set would transfer. Um, I he the president knew who I was. I mean, he had met me as an immigration advocate. He knew exactly what he was getting and what he was asking for. So I thought, well, maybe he's he he's doing this on purpose. Maybe I'm the kind of person that he actually wants to have a voice in his White House. But I wasn't at all sure that I would fit. And that the skills, my skill base and my knowledge were right for that setting. And this is, I think, I've been thinking about this a lot because I've been writing about what it's like to be a a woman of color in in some of the the rooms that I'm in. Mm -hmm. Um, And this happens to us a lot, right? We don't see people like us sitting in the Roosevelt Room or in the West Wing. And so we wonder whether actually we really belong there. And... Um, we assume, I certainly assume that like other people, and usually that means white ones and male ones in particular, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the kinds of people you picture in the West Wing, have some body of knowledge that I don't possess. And and I assume that that is a superior body of knowledge. And I've, you know, I've spent eight years in the White House. I now know that there are definitely people who know stuff that I don't know. And there are definitely people who do not know what I know. And they need to know it. They need that voice to be in the room. And that's why the president asked me to come. And uh, during the times when I had doubt, I would kind of fall back on that, that. Like he knew what he was asking for. So now I need to screw up my courage and say the thing that nobody wants to hear. So I learned that the, the skill set does transfer under the right circumstances. I'm not sure I would have been a fit in somebody else's White House. But I was a fit in Barack Obama's because he is yeah. who he is. Yeah, I think so many of us 
struggle with imposter syndrome. And it's remarkable to me to sit with someone like you who's been at the top and been in the rooms and, and to realize, oh, <laughs> you struggle with the same with the same feeling as well. It's it's hard to wrap my head around that sometimes, but it but it seems like it's it's a natural thing for people of all backgrounds and identities. Well, so we are frequently firsts and frequently onlys, right? The only one in the room. Um, this must happen to you all the time. Um, it certainly happens to me all the time. And I think this is an experience that people of color have in all kinds of different kinds of settings. And I, so I've been writing a book aimed at young women of color in particular, trying to distill things that I've learned that might be of value to them. And I talked to other women who are, who have done amazing things, all women of color, and they all have experienced it, 100% of them. And interestingly, we all respond in the same way um, by over-preparing, um, by like making sure we've done our homework, um, making sure we can fall back on the confidence of knowing our stuff and knowing that we've worked it hard um, and and so that when you have a mo moment of doubt, like now I have to say the thing that nobody else knows, um, you fall back on the fact that, you know what, I, I've learned it well. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember my own parents saying you just have to be twice as good as everyone to be accepted. So so what's worked for you? I mean, when you're in these settings and that doubt comes into your mind of, do I really belong here? Yeah. What, what, what's the thought process that, that makes you feel comfortable? Well, I definitely do my homework. So I do, I like lean back and remember... All right, but I know this stuff. So then the kind of muscle memory kicks in. I also, as I said, I, I would sometimes sit back and remember, you know what, the president asked you here for a reason and the people in this room may not understand what it is, but he does and you do and that's enough. But then I also have this, I think of it as a practice of um, kind of conjuring up the people that I worked with um, in the Archdiocese of Chicago and the parishes that I worked with or in the communities that I connect to here that I, um, it's a hard thing to describe, but it's a thing that kind of I can conjure up out of a little bit of silence. And that is to, I sort of put myself in the presence of the people who's, who inspire me, whose voice I'm trying to be and takes the fear right away because that's a, a thing that I really do know and that I really do mm -hmm. recognize is important if we're going to get this right. And then it doesn't matter so much if the person sitting across the table from me, you know, has three PhDs and was the president of whatever Ivy League college or, you know, whatever impressive thing is on the resume. Um, they that That's impressive stuff. But that person doesn't know, you know, the people from St. Procopius Parish in Chicago, Illinois. And, uh, and I have that information and that um, context. And if we're going to do this work well, that context matters. Like I've I don't have any doubt about that. You know, it's interesting to hear that from you because on the one hand, what you're saying is is so unrelatable. Like most of us aren't about to get a phone call from the U.S. president. But on the other hand, it's also totally relatable. We all have similar experiences of of not feeling like we actually belong or that we bring value to the table. And it can be so powerful and, and empowering even to realize that we actually do have something valuable to offer or contribute. But there's a lot of data now that shows that, you know, the reason to have diversity in a corporate room or in any room um, is not just because it's inherently a good thing, although it is. You also make better decisions that way. You have more perspectives. You un can understand an issue from a number of directions. 
Um, so the you know to in corporate speak, you get more value. You're able to to you know meet your goals better if you have diversity in the room. Like we know that to be true. There's lots of data to show that that's true in all kinds of different kinds of settings. So what that means to anybody who doesn't necessarily who can't say to themselves, "Well, President Obama appointed me," or you know, "I went to Harvard, so somebody must have seen something there." What I encourage people to say to themselves is what I know by virtue of being who I am and from where I'm from. Um, the people that I'm in this room with need that. They may or may not know that they need that, but they do. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I keep thinking about my daughter and the messages she's receiving about where she belongs and where she doesn't belong. It is it is scary to think about, well, it's it's not just about... It's not just about creating space for yourself, but then you also have to feel like you belong in that space. And that is, that's, that's a psychological thing too, right? It's so much of American culture is ethnocentric. We're raised to be, we're raised to believe that America is the best and exceptional and anything coming from the outside is inferior. Certainly struggled with that myself. I mean, even though my parents come from, even though my parents are immigrants, you know, I, I remember making fun of them and telling them that they weren't real Americans, even though they've now lived here for 40 years, longer than I have, right? And it, it's just this interesting sort of personal process I've had to go through to, to, to deal with my own internalized xenophobia. And so I'm interested to hear from you. I mean, you, you come from an immigrant family. You married an immigrant. You've been working with immigrants for your entire life now and, and just... Have you had an experience like that? Is that something that you've had to deal with as well? I th I think so, but I I'm sensitive to the fact that um, I had a different set of things to internalize, and this is true in my immediate family because we're light skinned. You can't you don't. So I'm a hundred percent Latina, but but you wouldn't necessarily know it to look at me. I have you know brown hair. I I, I look like my daughter would call it white passing. Uh, and I have one daughter who describes herself as white passing, and one daughter who because she looks like my husband is like identifiably brown. Like people know she's something, they don't quite know what, but they know she's something. And and I realize that her experience walking through the world is different than her sister's and is different than mine. So I, I think you, I suspect you internalize, some of what gets internalized has to do with how people react to you on the basis of what you look like. And, um, and, and so my experience was different. However, I didn't grow up a lot around a lot of Latinx people except my relatives. I I do think we sort of grew up with a sense that, um, you know, because at some level we came here on purpose and then family members joined us here and we had opportunity here that we wouldn't have had back in Bolivia, that this that there is something superior about this place, um, that everybody else who comes from somewhere else should be really grateful about. I think I internalize that. You know, so and when I think about this from the point of view of romantic relationships, I dated white guys until I met my husband. And I remember being shocked that the person who felt like family to me was this guy from India, except that he did. And what my daughters will, would tell you if they were sitting here is, you know, they come from these two very different families, different languages, different religions, different food, right? Meat-eating Latin Americans and a bunch of vegetarian <laughs> Hindus. But what they would say is, you know what, Our, the two families, totally the same. You know, there are all these differences on the surface, but the big stuff, which is sen the sense of family is expansive. Everybody's your cousin and your auntie. 
we gather in huge gatherings around food and, you know, it's loud and raucous and delicious and amazing. It's true on both sides of their family. So what they see is the same and I experience it as, as the same. But I also acknowledge that I have room to do that because um, I didn't have to spend a lot of energy, you know, pushing back on what people assumed about me because what they, because people thought I was white. It only show, it only showed up when we were speaking Spanish, um, which we were kind of careful to do. Spanish in Michigan when I was growing up was kind of our language of secrets. Your family would speak it at home, but it wouldn't be in public. Or how how did you yeah. keep it secret? Yeah, I mean, it, it, so and in at least in the area where I grew up at the time, if you were out in the world, you could pretty much count on the fact that nobody else around you spoke Spanish. So if we wanted to say something we didn't want people to hear, that was how we did it. My parents were nearly evicted from their first apartment in Detroit in the 50s because the landlady caught them, as she put it, speaking Mexican. I didn't learn that story till I was an adult. And they they didn't get evicted. And they thought it was kind of funny because, you know, here is this woman who didn't understand that the language of, you know, Cervantes and Sor Juan Inés de la Cruz was that she didn't understand. And, and she didn't realize that they weren't even Mexican. Have you ever talked to them about why they chose to teach you Spanish then? I mean, I, I know so many Spanish-speaking families where they just said, told their kids to learn English and, and that Spanish would be a disadvantage. Yeah. It was important to my parents for us to be able to stay connected to our family. Mm. Um, and again, we had the... I've, I've talked about this a lot with people that I've worked with because I work, I've worked in the Latinx community my whole, my whole career. And... I, so I've, I've come up with people who had lots of different experiences, people whose, fa- whose families really insisted that they be bilingual and people whose families really insisted that they not speak Spanish because it would hold them back. And some of that has to do about color. Some of that has to do about um, the concern that um, if people experience you a certain way, they expect you you know, to, to be their house cleaner. And I remember meeting a teacher my daughters went to language immersion uh, elementary school and one of the teachers had come from a system a school system in another state where he said there that system is quite deliberately preparing the latino students to be janitors and house cleaners that they don't they they are not conveying any sense of aspiration for these kids and so in, in some families they associated spanish with that and fortunately, my family wasn't one of them. What from your spiritual or ethical worldview informs your perspective on immigration? So this is something I, I think about a lot, especially because I transitioned from being an advocate to being in government. And when you're governing, you have to make really hard decisions because the law is terrible. And the tools available to you in government are terrible. And people have asked me, and I've asked myself, so how, do, how can you reconcile what you believe with, with um, the decisions that you have to make when you're governing? And the conclusion that I reached about that is that um, you need people who know what we know and who bring the values that we bring in government making those hard decisions, even when the options are all terrible, because if we elect to sort of stay pure, then somebody else is going to sit in those chairs and make those decisions. Um, and some of the hardest decisions I had to make, and, and the most wrenching was the summer of 2014 when we had a crisis of unaccompanied migrant children. Um, and the 
tools available under the law are not sufficient to address what we were seeing. I fortunately worked with like 100% of the people that I worked with were really, really worried about those kids. And we were moving heaven and earth to make sure that they were properly sheltered and reunited with their families. And the contrast between that and what we have now, I, I find very striking. But nevertheless, um, you have to make the best decisions possible with the tools that are available. And you have to find a way to square that with your conscience when your conscience would prefer that you that the situation were different, that you had better options. And as long as I knew, I really, it, I told the president this once. I said to him that, that summer, because he was worried about me, because I was carrying, I, I guess I must have been carrying my anxiety about this on my face, um, that I examine my conscience every day, and that as long as I'm satisfied that we have the right motivations and that we're doing our utmost with the tools that are available, that that's, that that's, that's as much as you can do, even when it's not enough, but that I had to get up every morning and apply that, right? Are we doing our absolute utmost in fulfilling our responsibility to these fellow human beings, understanding that we have terrible tools here? Um, and I think that's how you keep your integrity in that kind of a role. And there are people definitely who in my life who disagree. And there's, I, I, I don't mean to suggest that we also always made the right decisions because um, you always make mistakes and I, you have to live with those too. But I think you have to bring your values to your work. And if you're working in a situation where you feel like you can't, then that's not the right situation to work in. And I was able to square the work that I did in the Obama administration with my conscience in part because I worked for a president that I believed in. I'm not sure I could have done it for a different president. And it still took a lot out of me, honestly. And what, what does that look like for you in terms of values? When you say you want to square your values with the work, what, what, are, those, what are those animating values in your life that you lean into? Well, and look, this is the reason we chose the Quaker faith for our children. The Quakers are animated by the belief that there is that of God in everybody, right? That every, that there is something sacred in every human. If you apply that to work in government or to public policy work, that means that you that you have to be about creating opportunity. You have to be about opening doors for your fellow humans for in whatever form that takes, making it possible for them to live up to their potential, to raise their children in safety. That's how I understand our responsibility to each other. I'm struck throughout our conversation, you've, you've mentioned children so many times. I mean, you're raising your own children, but also when we're talking about immigration, you're the stories you're telling. I mean, it seems like that's a really important part of it for you. It is in part because that the unaccompanied children phenomenon is the thing that haunts me the most. That was the the hardest period of, of my work in government. Um, because it's, I mean, and look, it's gotten worse since we left government, and I'm haunted by that too. Um, I, as a mother, it's hard for me to imagine what it takes for someone to put their child in the hands of a smuggler to send them thousands of miles away on a really quite dangerous journey. Um, like, what does it take for that to be your best option? And what is our, you know, responsibility when that decision brings a child to our door. Yeah, and, and that this happens in huge numbers every year. 
so yeah, I do think about it a lot lately in terms of children, both because that experience was challenging, but also because the current administration has made such devastating decisions when it comes to migrants and their children. Do you see the current situation of you know family separation and child detention at the border? Do you see that as a as a moral, ethical, religious issue? Yes. Or, yeah. yeah, I think so. I actually I th- I think about this all the time. And I have asked friends in the Jewish community whether this is, is an okay thing to say. And so far, nobody has said that it isn't. This is a, the, the, the choices that this administration has made with respect to migrants and, and their children are, are things that, like that Nazis did. Right? The notion that we will enact a policy and take away a toddler from her parent without even bothering to keep track. Um, is a level of callousness that that I think rises to that description. And I uh, cannot accept that that would be done in our name in this country. I wonder all the time whether we're doing enough about it. Continued to happen for over a year. And for all of our outrage and all of the country's outrage, it's still happening. And I do, I think that is a, that is an equivalent moral ethical dilemma to the ones that we ask ourselves about that if, you know, if we'd been Germans in the 1930s, who would we have been? What would we have done as this horror unfolded around us? And what I feel like I learned from the Holocaust generation, I think what they were communicating to us was when it's starting, it feels really normal. And people get up in the morning and they go about their business, even as this is starting to unfold all around them. And I think that's where we are right now in the United States. Um, and we get up in the morning and we go about our business and you and I are having this conversation while our government is doing this appalling thing in our name with our tax dollars. Um, and I, that is a, a deeply moral and ethical dilemma. And I, I think it's a spiritual one. Do you, do you feel any, let me ask it this way. Do you feel like that's a weight that you carry personally in a way that's different from most other Americans? Only in the sense that I've been in the policymaking chair and I know how those decisions get made and uh, I know what other alternatives are possible. And because the person that I consider most responsible for these policy decisions, whose name is Stephen Miller, sits in my old chair. Um, quite literally, I mean, he was assigned the office that I used to sit in. Um, so yeah, I'm haunted by that for that reason. I when I when the family separation became public, I could tell just because I know how the policy decision making process works. I could tell exactly what they did do and what they didn't do, and what didn't happen, which could have stopped it. So I, I guess I'm burdened with that kind of inside knowledge, but I don't think my outrage is any deeper than anybody else's who you know can't believe we would take children away from their parents that callously. So how do you deal with these feelings on a day-to-day basis? What what is it that keeps you that keeps you pushing forward at a time when things can easily feel so hopeless? Constantly asking myself kind of what is mine to do, right? We we can all spout off all the time decrying the outrage which which sometimes feels satisfying and sometimes feels deeply unsatisfying. I think the harder question is, how do we get from here to somewhere different? And what is mine to do to get us there? I don't think we can all be 
I think of it as, as everything's on fire and we can't all be firefighters all the time. And what, and, and thinking about what I might do when I left government, I concluded that like the world didn't need me to be another firefighter. Um, but I am a person who can, who can step back and see the landscape and try to help devise a strategy. I am a person that has inside knowledge of how government works and I can, use my voice to lift that up and help people recognize what they're seeing, or particularly help reporters recognize what they're seeing. Um, and so I try very hard to figure out what is the thing that I could be doing that feels like it's mine to do that might not happen if I weren't doing it. You know, where can I, I make a difference? I think like lots and lots of us, I ask myself all the time whether it's enough. It doesn't feel like enough. And what is your, what is your hope for the future? What are you looking what are you looking forward to and what would you like to see? You know, I, I consider myself very fortunate that I, I learned from President Obama how to play the long game and think about the long game. I see this terrible moment that we're in as a, um, I frequently describe it as a time when the fog is lifting on things that have always been true about us, but that we haven't always acknowledged or we haven't always seen. I feel that way about police violence, which... You know, the black and brown community has been saying for a long time that this is a thing, <laughs> but we we all collectively see it now in a way that we didn't. So the fog is lifting, and then, you know, what we choose to do about that is important. I think the fog is lifting with respect to things that women have had to deal with since forever um, that we can see now in a way that maybe we didn't see before. Um, I think that's true with respect to immigrants and migrants to a degree. And so... My hope is that living in this time of fog lifting, that we can take what we see and use that information to create the, you know, multiracial, multiethnic society we have been trying to be. Um, that's our job. Um, I think our responsibility when you're living in a moment of terrible is to take, make sure that terrible is visible and make sure that we're responding it to get somewhere else. Um, and that, you know, I think we all wish that weren't the time we were living in, but it is. And I firmly believe we didn't stop being the place that elected Barack Obama twice. We're still that hopeful country. But it is also true we never stopped being the place that enslaved people and that interned Japanese Americans and that, you know, committed genocide against Native Americans. Like, we're still that place, too. We are all of those things at the same time. And the more we understand that, I think the greater our capacity to um, do better. I'm so grateful to Cecilia Munoz for taking time out of her busy schedule to share her personal and professional experiences with us. I've learned so much from her about advocacy and immigration rights over the years, and more than anything else, how to live in this world with an attitude of service and compassion for those around us who have the least. I'm grateful for her openness and her constant willingness to shatter glass ceilings for us all. And I'm excited for her upcoming book, More Than Ready, which will be published in May of 2020. Thank you to our producers, Cynthia Pimentel, Edie Allard, and the rest of the team at Wonder Media Network and the Venley team for their support. Shout to my brother Rajuju for theme music. Thanks to y'all for listening. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Before we go, let me tell you about Last Day, a new podcast from Lemonada Media about the things that are killing us. 
It tackles massive epidemics and societal challenges that are hard to comprehend and getting worse every day. Now, this may sound bleak and depressing, but best-selling author Stephanie Whittles-Wex hosts the show with humanity, wit, and a quest for progress. In Last Day, you'll hear from people directly affected by the crisis, including Sarah Silverman and Aziz Ansari, as well as authors, experts, policy leaders, including in communities of color and first responders. It's chilling and important, and you won't want to miss it. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.